0: This is a healthy respect for God's definition for good and evil, and true wisdom is learning those boundary lines and not crossing them.
1: Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff
0: O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in today for episode 25 of the show. We're glad that you're here. As we've been flying over the Bible from an international space station altitude, we have come now to four books that we commonly know as the Books of Wisdom. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. We gave Psalms its own episode last week because there's so much there that connects with Jesus, we felt like we couldn't do it justice by lumping Psalms together with other books. If you missed the episode on Psalms, you may want to go back and check it out. For today, it's helpful to talk about these four books together, because even though they each have something to say on their own, taken together, they help balance each other and what it means to live a godly life. And they point us to God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself through Jesus, but in a very unique way. So to get us started, one of the hardest things about reading these books is that they are highly poetic in their writing style. And so how can we approach these books understanding how Hebrew poetry works?
1: When we think about Hebrew poetry in the Bible, it takes up approximately one-third of the Old Testament. So books like Psalms are often very poetic. These books we're going to be covering today, uh, as well as Hebrew poetry being sprinkled in throughout the prophets or the historical books and even the books of the law. So we definitely want to have an idea about how to read and understand Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not so much about rhyming like much of the poetry you and I are probably used to. We probably all know roses are red, violets are blue, candy is sweet, and so are you. We're familiar with that and it sounds poetic in its rhyming structure. But again, Hebrew poetry is more about parallelism. If you're looking for a technical definition of what that means, the idea that it consists of two or more lines that form a pattern based on repetition or balance of thought and grammar and or syntax. That's a definition from the ESV Literary Study Bible. The idea is it's not so much about the words that rhyme, it's about the thoughts that rhyme, I think is a way mm-hmm. I've heard that described before. So there are four main types of parallelism used in Hebrew poetry. Synonymous parallelism, in which the second clause repeats the thought of the first. So for example... In Isaiah chapter 15 and verse 1, says, Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Ker of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. There's antithic parallelism. That is, the idea contained in the second clause is the converse of that of the first. In Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a sad son is a sorrow to his mother. There's climactic parallelism. Subsequent clauses make an advance in thought on what is developed in the first. So, for example, in Job chapter 3 and verse 4, as Job laments the day of his death, he continues to build upon the idea of how terrible that day was for him. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And then finally, there's constructive parallelism, where the second clause supplements or completes the idea of the first clause. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 17 It starts off by saying, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Shout out to my father-in-law, Jeff Stewart, for this information from his introduction material for a class he taught on Joe. I think he cites a source by Mike Willis, but whenever I need to refresh myself on Hebrew poetry and what the different types of Hebrew poetry and parallelisms are, I've got this little sheet from him that I can just go to right away and find it. So, thanks, Jeff. As we think about this information, though, it's something we need to know about as we read these highly poetic books, as we're trying to understand the meaning of each specific passage. We well, refer to these books as not just poetic books, but they're part of this Books of Wisdom section, or Wisdom Literature genre. What does that mean? What does it mean to be part of Wisdom Literature?
0: Yeah, when we talk about Wisdom Literature, what we're talking about are the books of the Bible that teach what Wisdom is. And when you look at each of these four books, they contain a wide variety of writing styles, which is one reason why they're so fascinating. So they're all poetry, as you pointed out, but they're different kinds of poetry. So the book of Job, for instance, is mostly speeches of Job and his friends that they're all discussing Job's sufferings and why he's suffering. The book of Proverbs is mostly these short memorable sayings about good versus evil choices and, and why we'd, we would want to choose good over evil. Ecclesiastes is, is very different in that it does have some proverbs in it, but a lot of it is written with kind of a spiraling thoughtfulness about the puzzles of life. And so it, there's parts of Ecclesiastes that just kind of seem to repeat the same thought over and over again, because he wants the thought to sink in. And Song of Solomon is still different in that it's more of a theater or a drama about the romantic love between a man and a woman. And so you've got these four different types of writings, all poetry, and yet they all show us something about how to live a good life. And when you put them all together, the sum answer is, the path to a good life is a God-centered life. You know, If we want to live a good life, it's not about casting off the restraints of rules or throwing caution to the wind to sow your wild oats, but rather a good life is lived by respecting God, uh, ordering your life after his rules. And so as we think about that definition of wisdom, let's jump into more detail about these books, starting with the book of Job.
1: So the book of Job raises the question, why do the righteous suffer? And I think that's a really good description of the book, how it raises the question. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. Starting with Job here, I don't mean to offend anyone by overgeneralizing, but unless we've studied Job fairly recently, we probably only remember about 10% of the book. I think a lot of us are familiar with chapters 1, 2, and 3, kind of the mm-hmm. setting of what happens. Satan's on the scene, Job loses his stuff. Chapter 3, Job's really sad. And then we remember chapter 42, where things get better for Job, where he says he repents, God gets angry at his three friends because his three friends weren't very helpful and said some wrong things, and then Job gets all this stuff back, and that's the end. Now, Mm -hmm. that's a synopsis of the book, but definitely not a great and definitely not a complete story. Like Emerson mentioned, the book is made up of a series of speeches, and these speeches are set up in a poetic style of you have... The friends speaking in poetry and Job speaking in poetry. You see, the friends give a speech, and then Job kind of gives his answer to his speech, and they go in these cycles. But we miss a lot of the information when we leave out this middle poetic section where Job and his friends try to explain why they know all the answers about what's going on, as we often do, especially when it comes to topics of suffering, right? When we think about life's problems or the, all the things going on in the world. We always think, well, this is how I would solve that issue. But a lot of times, as we get into real-life scenarios, sometimes don't we feel like that? We feel like that, oh, I have all the answers. Job yeah. helps us understand we don't have all the answers. As we think about suffering, it's interesting that the book raises the question of why do the righteous suffer, we see that's a big part of the book, but the fact is God never gives Job an answer to that question. So Job, I think we can say, makes some pretty brash accusations against God's behavior. He's constantly looking for justification about why am I facing this? I'm not guilty of sin or anything like that. And even ends up is calling God's character and God's behavior into question, saying God is not a good God. Job is lamenting. Job is speaking from his emotions, from his heart, a very deep, dark place. So we understand where he's coming from, but there are some things that it's not good to accuse God in that way. Now, we don't really want to get into a detail of what is each of these books about. as Again, this whole series is about a whole story connection, trying to see how does this relate to the whole story of the Bible, each of these particular books. But first of all, we do want to say, if you want to better understand the wisdom found in these books, in Job or in the Song of Solomon, or in Ecclesiastes, or even the book of Proverbs, the best way to do that is to read them, and then reread them. And then after you've lived life a little while, maybe after you've lived a couple of years, you'll come back to them again and read them again with the knowledge that you have now. I read something recently, and I don't remember the exact wordage, but here's a paraphrase of the idea that this statement was made. The best way to understand a more particular book of the Bible is to read that particular book of the Bible. Now, that sounds (laughs) silly and very obvious, but the point is, if I don't understand the Song of Solomon, the best way to understand it is not to go ask my preacher, hey, what's the Song of Solomon about? If I don't understand the middle section of the book of Job, the best way to start understanding it better is not to go look up a video, say, what is the book of Job about, and then just walk away. The best thing to do would be to pick up your Bible, open it up to Job, and start working your way through. And you will probably have lots of questions, and you'll probably have to go look up a lot of resources to try to answer some of those questions. But the best thing to do when wanting to understand these books is to read them on your own. Now, kind of back to the whole story connection ideas. So thinking about the ideas of connected to all of Scripture, when God's people suffer, especially because of their righteousness, we see Job as an example about someone who does have faith and patience and how those must be present to make it through those sufferings we see James writing in James chapter 5 and verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. As James writes to Christians who are suffering and going through various trials, he says somebody you can look to for example about how to make it through these sufferings is Job. I think it's interesting he makes the point too that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If we read and we don't spend some time to chew on what happens in Job, it can be hard to come away with that thought, because you look at what happens to Job and you think God is not compassionate and merciful, but we see that God truly is as we understand and dwell on the book.
0: Yeah, it's easy for us to kind of sit in judgment against Job and say, if I was in his situation, I wouldn't have said those things. Yeah. But, you know, until we're in that situation, we can't really relate to the sufferings and the intensity of those sufferings that he went through.
1: That's right. And just as we can't question God either, God is the one who knows all things, who's in control of his universe. That really seems to be kind of the point of Job 38 through Job 41, the first part of 42, is that God is saying to Job, Hey, where were you when I made everything? Can you tell the earth how to control its weather? Can you tell an ostrich to not be stupid? Can you, you know, control crocodiles and hippopotamuses or whatever those beasts in chapter 40 and 41 are all about, God says, I understand that this is difficult, but, you know, I'm still in control here and all of that. Even that's probably an oversimplification of God's vantage point and viewpoint in the book of Job, but there is a lot to learn about steadfastness from Job in that book, as well as we need to see another whole story connection, Job may have especially struggled with his suffering because he did not have a perfect understanding of how the resurrection works. In Job chapter 14, Job seems to have a, when we die, it's all over type of attitude. But later in Job, Job chapter 19, Job does say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and seems to say, someday I'm going to get a chance to see God and speak to him about all these things. It seems to be a, does have some type of thoughts of life beyond death. Now, I doubt Job had his mind on Jesus when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, but we do, being on the other side of the cross. We praise God for our Redeemer, for Jesus Christ, who has freed us from the bondage of sin. The ultimate source of suffering that any of us could face or go through is to be enslaved to that. So may we thank God that we have this book to learn about how do we respond to suffering, how do Christians respond to suffering, and how are we thankful for the one who is our Redeemer, even in our moments of suffering.
0: So when we come to the book of Proverbs, the message here is that if you follow these rules, then your life will be good. Usually we think of Proverbs as a random collection of short, pithy sayings to help us live a wise life, and that's certainly true, but there's a lot more that needs to be said about it. The book of Proverbs contains a lot of rules of thumb to live by that are generally true, and so we need to read them with kind of an asterisk beside them. There's always some limitations or exceptions that apply. For example, in Proverbs 22, verse six, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so this is generally true that when you raise your children to trust in the Lord, they're going to do that their entire life. But it's not a guarantee that every well-raised child will do that. And so read Proverbs as a book of principles rather than absolutes. Now, the theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You find that in the opening paragraph in chapter 1, verse 7. And I like the way the guys at the Bible Project define the fear of the Lord. They say, this is a healthy respect for God's definition for good and evil. And true wisdom is learning those boundary lines and not crossing them. Mm-hmm. I think the book of Proverbs is is really practical. It gives us really good insights on how to handle all kinds of life situations, and there's a lot more we could say about that. But we're trying to focus on the whole story. So how does the book of Proverbs connect with the whole story that's pointing us to Jesus? Well, it's a lot different because there's no prophecy of Jesus. There's no historical references to a coming Savior. But I do find it interesting that the tree of life is only found in three books of the Bible. The first is in Genesis at the very beginning in the garden, the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation 22 where God's people return to a garden scene where God is there, God is present, and then thirdly, the book of Proverbs. You find it, in fact, mentioned four times in Proverbs, the tree of life. Now, is this an accident? Is it just a metaphor? I don't think so. Remember, Proverbs is about trusting in God's knowledge, not our own. And the message is that if you trust your own wisdom, you will find yourself in hard situations and it leads to death. And this is precisely what happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve took of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, what they were doing was they were rejecting God's boundary and they were trying to grasp onto their own wisdom. And so they were separated from the tree of life because they trusted in their own knowledge rather than trusting in God. And so Proverbs kind of lays out this in a black and white kind of scenario, a contrast of good and evil, that living by God's rules leads to taking the tree of life. For instance, in Proverbs 3, verse 18, it's describing how wisdom is a woman and that she blesses men with silver and profit. And it says that she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast. So If we want this tree of life access to it, we need to live by God's rules. On the other hand, if we live by self's knowledge, if we trust in our own wisdom, then it's going to lead us to death. Like in in Proverbs 14 verse 12, it says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so I think the book of Proverbs fits into the whole story in that it shows us that the path to the tree of life is by fearing God and trusting him. The well-known proverb, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And so this is the path back to the garden. Proverbs prepares us to look to Jesus for wisdom rather than relying on ourselves.
1: So that moves us then to our third book. We're going to cover the Song of Solomon. This book is a series of love poems, and we like to maybe point out here things that are different. They're, this book is similar in the fact that it's poetic in nature and it's part of the wisdom literature, but it's different that it's not really covering like the the big grand scheme of life. It's not covering how do I live when I'm going through suffering or how do I have good life if I follow God or even if life is unfair and doesn't make sense, like we'll get to in just a second with Ecclesiastes. The Song of Solomon is essentially just a love poem. It's a, it's a romance story. We read in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 32 about how Solomon wrote 1,005 songs, and this is most likely one of those songs that's mentioned in there. In fact, its title in Hebrew is The Song of Songs. It's the greatest of all songs, greatest of all love songs, even better than I See the Light from Tangled. You know that little duet in that movie? <laughs> that's one of my favorite Disney love songs, and this song is better than that. Now, the question comes to what is this book about? Again, I don't mean to offend anyone by overgeneralizing, but this is a book that is probably unfamiliar to many of us. It's unfamiliar to me. It's probably out of the four of these, the one I'm least familiar with and have really had to do that, trying to become familiar with by reading and rereading. And the poetry nature of it and a lot of the, the material of it is maybe difficult for me to understand, but not impossible. So this book is about a woman longing for her lover, and these two are deeply in love with one another. And we find that within this book, they express their love to each other in these great poetic ways as they describe each other, describe their love for one another, and even describe their attraction for one another. There are some people who describe the book of Song of Solomon as kind of erotic Hebrew poetry, and that maybe sounds kind of jarring to people, but the idea is that as part of this, we see that this is a book of the Bible that affirms God's attitude toward love, romance, and marriage, and not just on an emotional level, but even on the physical level as well. So when you read this book, there are some people who have questions about, well, how do we read this book? Is this supposed to be taken literally? Is this a made-up story that ends up having some symbols and meanings that I get to ascribe the meanings to different things? Is this a metaphor? Is it a combination of being a literal book and a metaphorical book? I don't know if I can give a solid answer say it's one way or the other. I think I see it as kind of, it's a, a literal book. It talks about the, the love between a husband and a wife and people who are pursuing that love and ultimately are fulfilled in lo- their love for one another and continue to grow their love for one another. But I do think there is also something about God's view of his people, and then eventually we could even say talking about Christ and his church. Let's talk about that here in our whole story connection. The whole story connection begins by just thinking about God's view of sex. It's purity before marriage, beautiful when it exists between a husband and a wife. There's this phrase that's used over and over again in the book in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 4, where there is the statement of The woman is speaking in in something to the effect of, Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up the passions of love until the time is ready. And it's just that idea of, of love is great. And even the sexual love that a husband and wife express together in that relationship as God designed for it is a wonderful thing. But it's meant to have a purpose of being within that confined of relationship. And so... You see that that phrase is used not even before marriage, but even after the two are married. There seems to be this statement that's made of even in marriage, you need to be careful about how you use that type of emotion and use that, I guess, maybe part of the brain or however you want to describe it. But it shows God's approval of all of this, it shows the love and adoration a husband and wife need to have. For one another. You listen to how the man describes his lover and how the woman describes her lover and how they're just totally into one another. And that's a great reminder of that shouldn't be something that's just, you know, in the early days and just fills us up. That's something that should last forever between the love of a husband and a wife. But I think maybe if we do see this as a metaphorical book, you see the love that Christ has for his church, as he is described as the husband and the church is described as the bride in Ephesians chapter 5. Many people make that connection with what Paul talks about, and the, the idea that God often refers to himself being married to his people, and there seems to be this desire, this longing for each other there. Even before the New Testament, there are many Jewish rabbis who would think about this book probably as a God expressing his love for his people, Israel and oftentimes talking about how they would commit adultery against him and how terrible that was, again, seeing this as a marriage. So this book is an interesting book and that, again, I'm going to take my own advice, and I'm going to have to keep reading and rereading it and, and as life goes on, as maybe as I learn some more things and experience more things, this book will make even more sense to me. I hope we can at least see the value of marriage that God has established, what God expects for marriage and for sex, and especially the love that we see that Jesus has for his people in the church.
0: And our final book we're going to talk about today is Ecclesiastes. And the message of Ecclesiastes is what to do when life is unfair And doesn't make sense. So, Ecclesiastes gives us a really good contrast to Proverbs and a little bit of a compliment to Job as well. So, the message of Proverbs was if you follow these rules, your life will be good. You will prosper. You will have wealth. You will have riches. You will have a good life. Ecclesiastes kind of backs up and says your life is not always going to be good, even if you follow the rules of wisdom. Proverbs shows us what is generally true. Ecclesiastes shows us those exceptions, those fine print limitations. And when we experience these exceptions, when life gets turned upside down, even when we're trusting in the Lord, we're living by His wisdom, the message is don't lose faith in God. Even though Proverbs and Ecclesiastes kind of show life from two sides of the coin, from two very different perspectives, I think they each teach the same fundamental principle, the fear of the Lord, whether your life is good or whether it turns out terrible. You you find that phrase, that message in both books, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the way Proverbs puts it. And at the end of Ecclesiastes says, the answer to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. So how does Ecclesiastes fit into the whole story of the Bible? Well, Ecclesiastes shows us the painfulness of life outside of the garden and the world that resulted from sin in Genesis chapter three. So in Genesis one and two, you saw life was perfect. Life was good. But in Genesis three, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and rebelled against God, they trusted in their own wisdom. God cursed the ground. And so even today, thousands of years later, we see these curses these painful things in action. We see injustice, corruption, unexplainable tragedies. So Ecclesiastes is a detailed and somewhat depressing explanation of the problem and consequences of sin. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. There's two parts to that verse. Part one describes the perfect world of Genesis 1 and 2, that God made men upright, that he made them to seek good, that they were perfect in relationship with one another and a perfect relationship with God. But part two of that verse, that they have sought out many devices, describes Genesis chapter 3 and beyond, and even current history, that people continue to seek after their own wisdom. And... The problems that Ecclesiastes describes are all the result of that. Not necessarily in a direct way, but the fallen nature of the world is, is a result of sin. Now, the struggles that we have, you know, and, and as Job under, was trying to wrestle and understand with his own suffering, Job's suffering wasn't a direct result of his sin, but his life was just a part of this fabric of life that is fallen mm-hmm. and because of sin. And Ecclesiastes also shows us that even in a sinful world, we hunger for God. One of my favorite verses in this book is chapter 3, verse 11, when it says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. And so that phrase, eternity in their heart, God has placed eternity within each one of us in the garden. He placed that in Adam and Eve, and we continue to have that even though we live in this sinful fallen world. And so the answer to the problem of sin that we've talked about developing from Genesis beyond into Israel's history, the problem of sin, the solution to that is not found within ourselves or in this world. Because it was humans who created the problem to begin with, we are a part of the problem. Instead, the solution must be found in God himself. And I think when Paul is writing Romans chapter 8, he seems to reference this idea when he writes that the world was subjected to futility. That word futility in Romans 8 verse 22 is is kind of related to that idea in Ecclesiastes that life is meaningless, that it's vain. And Romans says that we groan and we suffer as we wait for eternal glory. So Ecclesiastes shows us the result of sin, the consequences of that, and how terrible it is, and how sometimes it's really hard to understand that, but we need to grapple with, we need to acknowledge that the world is messed up because it makes our hope in Jesus that much more beautiful. So Ecclesiastes can be somewhat of a depressing book to read, (laughs) but it also pushes us toward Jesus and toward God as the one who has the solution to all of the depressing things in life. Amen.
1: So as we get into our To Be Continued section, today we have seen more of how the Spirit has inspired people, like Solomon, to write these helpful books on how to be wise in this life. Again, if you read Ecclesiastes once and you think, well, I don't feel that much smarter, maybe that's because you're supposed to read it more than once. You're supposed to meditate upon these things, and they're supposed to affect you throughout your life and meditate upon these things throughout your life. So use these books to be wise, and to have that God-centered life, which is so important in having that fear of the Lord and that biblical wisdom that we talked about in the beginning. But we see that in this time period, God did not just inspire people to write wisdom literature. God often delivered messages to his people, reminders to repent when they sinned, descriptions of terrifying judgment that comes upon those who have refused to repent, and glimpses of hope foretelling of when God's anointed one would bring blessings to all the nations, just like God promised to Abraham. These messengers are known as the prophets, and they give God's view of the news, and they remind people that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of his Son, Jesus Christ.
0: I like the point that you made earlier about reading the books of wisdom over and over again, especially as we go through different things in life, because, you know, I think the books of wisdom have so many layers of application to our lives, and the more experiences we have, the more we'll come to understand the wisdom God can give us in those books. Absolutely. So we want to challenge you today to, as Jeff and I were trying to think of, you know, what's a key passage in these wisdom books? We landed on Ecclesiastes chapters 11 and 12, because these are a good summary of what godly wisdom is all about. So we want to encourage you to read Ecclesiastes chapters 11 and 12 two or three times about fearing God, keeping his commandments, rejoicing in God, knowing that judgment is coming. Ask yourself as you read these two chapters, how will you implement God's wisdom this week to fear him and live a life of wisdom?
1: Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. We'll finish up the Old Testament in our whole story series next episode by talking about the prophetic books Isaiah through Malachi. Again, we're not looking to break each of these books down, but rather try to answer questions like, what was the role of a prophet, and what can we expect to find in the prophetic section of scripture? So until next time, if there are any other questions or topics or books of the Bible you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email at to working with the word podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, working with the word podcast at gmail.com.
0: So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
1: To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.